Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, this is Lainey. Welcome back to the podcast. And today we are joined for an episode of Editors Unedited, and we are joined with Rachel Kahn, who is an executive editor at William Morrow. And hi, Rachel. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Good. Who did you bring today? I brought Leah Frankie. Um, Leah's first book, America for Beginners, was an Indie Next pick. It was featured on NPR. It was a finalist for Barnes & Noble, Discover Great New Writers. It is a marvelous read. I am the editor, but you can trust me on that. Um, And we're actually here to talk about her second book, Motherland, which will be in stores in July of 2020. Um, Motherland is the story of Rachel Myers, who's just moved to Mumbai, India, with her Indian husband, Dhruv. And Rachel's a New Yorker, and she's smart, and she's funny, and she's kind of aimless. So when her husband says, hey, I've got this great job opportunity in India, she thinks it sounds like an opportunity for adventure, and she wants to fall in love with this big, hot, vibrant new city that they've moved to. And she sort of does, but she's also sort of struggling. And then one day, her mother-in-law, whose name is Swati, appears at her door. And Swati normally lives a thousand miles away in Calcutta, but she announces to Rachel that she's leaving her husband and she's moving in with Rachel and Dhruv, like, just like that. Oh, and then Dhruv announces that he's suddenly being sent on a month-long business trip. So it's this amazing setup that turns into the story of these two very practical and stubborn women from totally different cultural backgrounds trying to make the home what they each think it should be as they live together. And what I loved about this is it could have been a real good cop, bad cop, like easy stereotype story. But Rachel and Swati wind up forming this mutual respect and then a friendship that makes perfect sense. And it's really wonderful to see it develop. Um, The other push-pull of the book, besides the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law story, is the story of Mumbai, the city, which is practically a character in the book. Um, And Rachel wants to live very blissfully in this totally different culture and then hits up against the reality of it which is something that is entirely part of Leah Frankie's experience as an American who now lives with her Indian husband in Mumbai. So now that you have the backstory, dear listener, um, I'm thrilled to be talking with Leah and we can dive right in. Hi. Hi. Um, First of all, I'm just gonna get the really obvious question out of the way. You are an American woman living in Mumbai with your Indian husband who's from Calcutta. So is this your life? Like, is your mother-in-law <laughs> like Swati? Did she ever want to move in with you? Tell me about what's real and not. Absolutely. Um, it's not my life. It is and is not my life, is what I would say. Um, I, I have a wonderful relationship with my mother-in-law. I am so lucky to have been so fully embraced by everyone in my husband's family. And they are incredibly 
um, generous hearted and loving and accepting. And, and you hear so many horror stories all over the world about in-law relationships. Uh, it's such a historic reality. Um, I have none of that. I have a great, great relationship with these people. And I have really come to love my life in Mumbai and love Mumbai as a city. Um, and my husband is not in finance. He's a, he's a fellow writer and uh, all of these things. But I think that there are a lot of elements of the story that came from um, both the anxiety that I had moving to a new country with my husband, um, the early clashes or misunderstandings that I had with with uh, with understanding my in-laws and also understanding the people around me in India, and the isolation and loneliness that I felt when I moved to Mumbai, which I think are things that you feel when you change countries and change lives in that way, or certainly things I felt. Uh, so yes and no. Mm-hmm. Now, have your in-laws read this book? My in-laws have not read it. I told my mother-in-law about the plot, um, and she was sort of both, I think, you know, laughingly offended in a very loving way, uh, and it reminded her of a Bollywood movie she'd really liked, so we talked about that. Um, but my mother-in-law did read my first book, and, and she enjoyed that, so hopefully she'll like this one, too. Well, going back to what you were saying about living in Mumbai, like how did you fall in love with the city? What was what was your experience? Because you moved, you grew up in Philadelphia, yes, and then you were living in New York mm-hmm. when you moved there. So New York is a big city, but Mumbai is a bigger city. Absolutely. So yeah, um, it's hard to know the exact number of people who live in Mumbai, but it's somewhere between eighteen and twenty-two million. Um, there's a neighborhood that's like right. Or, or it might even be more than that because there's so much, so many. Um, I've heard statistics up to even like 25 million. There's a neighborhood just north of my neighborhood that has like over five million people in it, which is larger than the population of Iceland. Um, so it is nuts. Uh, New, I think New York to Mumbai is a good transition in some ways, though, because they're both incredibly vibrant, um, 24-hour cities with a great sense of optimism and also anonymity. And I think those two things are not part of every city or every Indian city. Um, India can feel, uh, when you're living in India, some of the systemic problems can feel overwhelming. Um, And in Mumbai, uh, there's a ton of great optimism and joy and things can also be really hard. It's the most expensive city in India, so that makes uh, life hard for many people. But it's the city of dreams. It's the city people move to to accomplish things. And it's a weird combo because it both has the uh, center of the entertainment industry. So it's got like a get off the get off the bus and be a star thing. But it's also the center of economic life in India. It's the center of Indian finance. So it has a lot of money and a lot of jobs, a lot of work, and people come there from all over the country. That's actually a really cool feeling when you've come from another country because there's this uh, there's a great sort of openness and you don't feel like you are coming to a place where you're always going to feel like an outsider and I think that's a great New York feeling too is you know people come from all over you become a New Yorker by being here you become a Mumbiker by being there not by being born there and that's a really uh those two things feel really similar as different as these cities are that you have that that joy that sense that I've chosen to be here And I think that drawing on my own experience, moving to New York City 23 years ago, um, when I when I was 21, I I really what you said just a second ago about that sense of isolation, you can really you can really feel incredibly isolated, even in a city that um, is so big and awash with people and vibrant and 
in particular, I mean, I at least spoke the language when I moved here, but when you moved to Mumbai, how did you learn to make your way? Because that is part of what's going on in this book is Rachel's just trying to figure out like how to make herself understood and learn at the same time. Yeah. It was really challenging, and I was also, I recognized, so lucky because, you know, thanks to wide-scale colonialization, many Indians speak a lot of English, and that's such a lucky thing as a, as a non-Hindi or non-Marathi speaker. And Mumbai is a very English-driven city. So, but of course, we all speak English really differently. Um, there's a ton of code switching that I found kind of uh, incredibly difficult and challenging. I was lucky that I had been with my husband for a while, so I was definitely used to the way that he spoke English, but of course he is, every single person is different and he's really well educated and has a really strong background in English. So there were a lot of like word choice things, um, language things, phrasing things that just made everything feel really indecipherable. Um, but Mumbai is a city that is really great for women and I was able to explore it a lot on my own. And what I did um, from the very first week was just start going out on my own, start taking the local trains, which are crazy and like, you know, uh, incredibly overcrowded and nuts. And I just would get off. I'd, I'd read about something that sounded interesting. I'd take the train, I'd get off, I'd walk around, I'd try to figure it out. I'd be totally overwhelmed. I'd come back home. I'd do the same thing again the next day. And I, um, just tried not to be afraid of doing that and I found every time I did it I was rewarded even when it was exhausting which you know exploration can often be um, and I tested that sense of it being really safe and I found that it is or at least it feels that way to me um, and that's really cool and I got more and more I don't know bolder uh, familiar eager and I fell in love with it I think by finding what was beautiful or interesting or industrious about the city in all of this chaos. I feel like in reading this book, there's so much of the the friction of what's basically like a two-man show for a lot of it. It really is about Rachel and Swati. You get a sense um, that they truly, they, they don't understand each other. Swati is really... She does not understand how Rachel can be so individualistic that she really does what she wants to do, does not feel the need to ask permission, and she herself has always lived a very dutiful life. And she comes to admire that about Rachel, and the, Rachel also then comes to admire certain things about Svati. How did you, you know, if you see Mumbai as being this great city for women and then you write a novel that sets these two female characters in it, how did you how did you come to write about it, writing from the perspective of an American woman, but you still found a lot to both critique and praise about Indian women and their experience in this book? Can you tell me about that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, I think it all comes... Uh, or the, the, the foundation of the seed of all of that really comes from deep personal experience, uh, my own relationships, and trying to think a lot about the transition that I made. Um, when, I, when I first got together with my husband and um, we talk about things, we talk about our lives and stories, and, and um, I think that when you're with somebody who's culturally different, you're primed to talk about cultural difference, which is great and productive and interesting and conflict-oriented because it's hard not to put value systems to project value systems onto cultural norms and um, 
behaviors. And my husband would tell me stories about his family, and I had these very strong judgments about what I thought was good and bad and right and wrong. Can you give us an example of that? Uh, sure. Um, there was a there was a member of my husband's family who married somebody that her family didn't approve of, and when that happened, she had asked for permission to marry this person. She wasn't given it, and she eloped, and they ran off together, and that caused a big schism in the family. Um, and that, and that, uh, changed a lot of dynamics in the family and it, um, the extended family didn't talk to her or her husband or their, or the family they started, uh, for, I, th- I think over 10 years. Um, when I first heard that story, I thought that, I mean, I, I felt like, oh, that's awful, which I think, uh. Most people feel, oh, that's awful that that caused so much conflict and pain. But my immediate response was like, the family's response was wrong. Uh, the family's response was morally wrong, and therefore I have a moral judgment about these people and what they've done. Um, and it's not that my feeling now has changed. It's not that I don't still see that situation that way. But I have so much more that I understand about the context around how an, how that cost so much to this girl's parents, how it cost them economically, how they had to close their business, how they had to leave the city, how they were socially stigmatized, and why their then response was so uh, pained and punishing. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's not again that I would, that I would, that I would do, that I wouldn't do differently or that I wouldn't want different, want something different to have happened. But just that I have more context now about the way that I've always been on the side of the individual, right? We're very into individual rights. That's really important to us. And that's why I say, you know, Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy because the the community stands in the way of the individual. And we want the individual to get what they want, especially when it comes to fulfillment. We feel very deeply about that. I think I feel very deeply about that. It's very easy to feel that way when you don't have to exist in all of the consequences of individual action. When when people are so closely tied to each other economically, socially, when it really does matter what people think of you because they won't patronize your business, because they won't allow you to live your life, you will be barred from things and hurt by things if you're if the people close to you act in a way that's considered um negative, illegitimate, morally wrong. It's really hard to understand that before you've lived in it. And I think, again, like I wouldn't, I don't feel differently now. I just know a lot more now. Mm -hmm. I know the way in which your, the way that I act affects this larger group of people um, in a way that I, I wish it didn't. I'm glad we've moved away from that in the United States. That whole feeling of your reputation, it feels very... Um, it feels very Austin to us, you know. It feels very like Regency like England, Victorian. Yeah, yeah, Victorian. Sure. But it, but it to be in a place where that's real, um, it it just makes me more. It makes me work harder to understand people who I would have previously dismissed as bad. Well, and that's something that does come up in this book that Swati also is says to Rachel very often. You can't do this because people will see you yeah. and people will talk about you. Yeah. And yet at the same time, she's leaving her husband yeah. to whom she's had this extremely proper, socially acceptable, socially approved marriage for all this time. And she even says, and maybe I'm spoiling the book a <laughs> tiny bit here, she says that she looked at her son 
Drew and his wife Rachel and and felt envy for the happiness that they found in each other, that they just seemed really suited and emotionally connected. And she realized that her marriage, which you know seemed to tick all of the boxes on paper socially, didn't have that. And that since she didn't have that, she had to eventually leave the marriage. Yeah. And I think, I wonder, I wonder if some people will find that, you know, so really unrealistic. Um, I think that one of the things that is a big shift for a lot of people right now that I, that I know in my life in India, older people, is that there's both a really, there is more and more of a sense of sort of wanting individual need to be more important and finding, trying to figure out a way to balance that with, with communal sentiment. Um, and there's also this sense that definitely, I think, in a much more practical way, as you, if your children get older and have the money to support you, especially women have more choices. You know, if you're not happy in your marriage or you're not happy with something, money is so money is so so the thing that keeps that keeps people in power in uh, in all social systems, right? And a lot of women who've never worked, and that's a lot of Indian women of many generations, also depended totally financially on their husbands um, and on this larger joint family system, and so. When your son or, or your daughter has money that they can funnel to you directly, it, it, it gives you a power to make more choices. It opens up yeah, the world yeah. to you. It opens up the world or, or, yeah, it sort of widens you. It gives you a little bit more, a little bit more of a fallback. And I think, um, I think that that's a shift that I've seen a lot of that I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about in this novel um, is that there's there's two, you know, there are um, the practical considerations of I have somebody else who will support me. And there's also the emotional consideration of I, I want something that I didn't get. This is a really interesting time of like social tension uh, that I've that I've seen in India that I think that a lot of people in my life talk about a lot uh, because women are working and women are working in a way that they haven't worked as much in previous generations and they're working all over the country they're working in you know tier one cities and tier two cities and tier three cities and rural India and there's this idea changing around um, autonomy for young people and I think that is that many older women that I've met they take it one of two ways sometimes they take it as like resentment that they didn't get it. And then some of them take it as like, I'm so happy you're getting this thing I couldn't have. And I think I'm really lucky because my mother-in-law is so the latter. Uh, she's incredibly supportive and incredibly open about, um, you know, I never, I never worked. I never, I never could. I wouldn't have been allowed to. I'm, I want you to be uh, autonomous and successful. And she's so proud of like every woman in our family, all of whom work. That's a huge social shift from a family who's gen- who, of a generation of people who just, women who didn't work and wouldn't have been able to, to now every woman in my age group works in this family. I mean, one of the things that, that keeps coming up when you're, this book is very full of cultural commentary about living in India. Um, and I, I want to mention that frequently when we have, you know, a non, for example, in this case, a non-Indian writer writing about yeah. Indian life and Indian people, um, in literature today, we talk about own voices and how it can be tricky to tell stories about cultures and people if you are not in that group and your background is Jewish and Puerto Rican <laughs> and you're from Philadelphia. And yet, when I read your book, um, both this one and America for Beginners, your first book, um, I find your portrayal of Indian people or Bangladeshi people in that book just to be really nuanced and empathetic. And um, for this book to kind of confirm my own sense about that, I sent it to an Indian reader who reads for um, cultural accuracy what in the publishing business we call a sensitivity read. 
Um, and she lives in Mumbai and she read Motherland and this is what she wrote back to me. She said, the book rings authentic to me. The descriptions of Mumbai are on point. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the story. Both Fatih and Rachel's perspectives ring true. And I thought that was such a great stamp of approval. And I wanted to bring it up for listeners. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything you can tell me about the thought process that goes into writing about India and Indians as a non-Indian who is immersed in that culture, but not of that culture. Yeah. Um, I I feel a lot of different ways about this because... um, I feel it's really I feel it's really important as a writer to just you know be as true to people and as true to life as possible, and um, obviously I am very invested in maybe it's not obvious but I'm very invested in um, authors from many different backgrounds and reading their work and reading about their experience because I love that and that's been something that is has not always been the case right in in the world of literature. Um, so sometimes I feel a little like, should I should I even be writing about this? Um, but this is my life, and it is the, um, the experience I've had. And I think that for me, as somebody who's culturally mixed, um, I grew up really looking inside and outside at lots and lots of different cultures. Because you are both Hispanic yeah. and Jewish. Yeah, exactly, because I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and I'm Jewish, and I am really privileged that my parents invested deeply in both of those parts of myself. So I grew up going to Puerto Rico a lot, and I uh, have a lot of family in Puerto Rico, and then I grew up going to synagogue and being very much a part of my Jewish and uh, Russian Jewish heritage. Um, and, uh, my, uh, most of my grandparents are either migrants or immigrants. So, um, I had a lot of firsthand experiences in that. And I think that taught me a lot about story and investigation. And I've always been really interested in, uh, investigating culture, both my own and then, you know, the others I encountered. I also felt like when I, when I'm, I think because of that upbringing and because of the way that, um, my parents invested in each other's cultures, when I got together with somebody and married somebody Indian, to me, it felt very important um, and immediate that I would try to invest very deeply in understanding India in a way that, that made sense to me. Um, and right. this was before you even moved yes, to India. Yes, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I was with my husband. We met in graduate school, so um, we were together for two years before we moved to India. And I knew that I was going to be moving after we got married. We had about a year in New York, but I knew I'd be moving to India. And so, you know, to me that just seemed like, well, this is the responsible thing to do. This is the this is the way I'm gonna connect with my in-laws. This is the way I'm gonna connect with the people in my husband's life. This is the way I'm gonna, you know, better connect to him, is investing in this and investing in reading a lot of books and, um, watching a lot of movies and preparing myself for this life abroad. But also that I didn't feel like I would be I don't want to live somewhere and not live there um, in the sense that, like, I've probably made a pretty American life for myself in Mumbai. Like, I, I cook, I make a lot of salads rather than eating a lot of, like, uh, uh, rice and dal, although I do eat those things. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to know. I wanted to, I wanted to do my best to make that part of the cultural exchange possible. Like, because you can't control the way that other people are going to try to understand you or what work they'll do. And I think... I'm the, I'm the kind of person for whom, you know, if there's work, I really want to do it. Because that's all you can control is what you've done. And so investing in understanding India. And then, of course, you know, 
India is so much less like one country and so much more like Europe. It's so diverse. It's so linguistically diverse. Uh, it's never really been this one thing. It was always all of these many kingdoms and states that have only been unified in the last sort of century. Um, and learning that is like complex and blinding. And there's so, it's definitely like all things, you know, the more you know, the less you know. Or the more you know, the more you know you don't know anything. And so then trying to pick up little pieces of it, of being like, I'm going to invest very deeply in understanding this thing about this Punjabi culture because my in-laws are part of this Punjabi culture in this one specific place that is not Punjab. I'll learn about that. And I'll learn about Mumbai. I'll learn about this thing in Mumbai. This, you know, try to piece it apart. Um, that just felt what, like what was responsible for me to be there. Um, and then I realized, oh, great, I've already done all this research that I can put into a book. It's like the book, the book, the narrative comes really second because like this is my life and I want, I, I didn't feel like I could be there and not invest. And I think that's also just me. I uh, I really admire people who cannot care deeply about everything, but I care so much and I try so hard. I'm such a trier and that, you know, there's there's so much you can learn if you force yourself to all the time always. Well, and you also, we didn't talk about this earlier, but you come from a playwriting background. Yeah. And so you're, I think you've always been very attuned to character and setting, and I think this book maybe more than your first one does read like it would translate very easily to a stage play because yeah. for much of it, it's really two people yeah. on the stage interacting in the same room. And it's talky. <laughs> and it's very talky, which I absolutely love, and I think the reader will love that too because you have a wonderful ear and you really capture Swati's voice in a way that um, is just so immediate to me. If you know Indian people or you've spent any time in India, and I put myself in that category, just reading on the page, I can hear her voice and the particular you know, accent and word choice and cadence. And um, it's, it's really wonderful. And I think that that was one of the things that um, the cultural accuracy reader said it just rings true. That's so nice. And I think that you have that that ear as a playwright. Did you consciously, as you were writing this, sort of set it up in your mind almost as like a play in five acts? You know, I don't. I doubt very much that I did, but I do think that there's some stuff about um, about dramatic writing training that like sinks into your bones. When I was in graduate school, I had a teacher um, who's a playwright, Annie Baker, and she writes plays that are very not like five-act structure, but she has a great sense of like Socratic playwriting. And she talks about having been an undergrad at Tish and how they just drill it into your bones. There's something about that structure that just like lit, like it just gets into you. And it's very hard to give it up because it becomes almost unconscious. And I think that... Um, I think that I do think about things the way they'd be in a play, but not, but I don't know that I consciously sit down to do it. I think playwriting definitely taught me to be to be like really really obsessed with like the way people talk, and I'm kind of great slash awful in that way because I really like I'm really interested in the way that people um to the way that people speak and and dialogue and what that I take people very seriously at what they say which can be very annoying but it it gives you a good ear for dialogue and plays are built on dialogue right and the idea that dialogue is active that you're always doing something with what you're saying I think that's a playwriting thing that never leaves you that like all all language is meaningful mm -hmm. um it's always got an agenda because you're giving the actor something to play right they need something to play it can't just be like give me the milk it's like why'd you kill my father yeah. but give but give me the milk and you have to give that you know that's what actors need and that's what you want to do as a playwright because drama is about efficiency 
Uh, so novels g- give me a chance to say a lot more, and I have so much to say. But I do think that the idea that dialogue has to, there's something active, you don't want anything that, is, that, that isn't saying something, that isn't moving the scene forward. I think that then I maybe do think in scenes in a way that I don't know that I knew I did. But, I, but if I look back at this novel, I do think these scenes are, each one is like, where it's conflict and then the conflict's unresolved and that leads to the next action. And that's, that's very much a dramatic writing. And I think it's Thanks. part of what makes the book really... <laughs> really readable straight through is that the there you are so invested in these characters and you really want to find out what happens and how the conflict resolves and for the listener I can say you should read this book because it resolves in ways that are unexpected um, and surprising and extremely satisfying. I, that's so the perfect much. way to end that. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, Rachel. Thank, thank you, Leah. You. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Um, be sure to pick up Motherland. It comes out in July. Um, and thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.